Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. Um, that clip actually is three and a half minutes long. I cut it down because it goes on forever. It really does. Um, there are a few scenes in the film world that uh, help me understand the struggle with pride, and that is one of them. That is, and I hope that maybe you've got some, some visual images for the struggle with pride now that you can walk out with going, I just can't get rid of this bomb. Like, you think you get rid of it, and then you realize you haven't. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, if killed, pride revives. If buried, it bursts the tomb. You may hunt down this fox and think you have destroyed it, and lo, your very exaltation is pride. I have killed pride. You see, it's slippery. It's tricky. It stays in front of us. And some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. I think we know that Jesus said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. But I also know how we love to be served. That's natural. We want people to serve us. That's what we want. It's the way we think. We like to think of how much pride someone else has, but that's our pride speaking. A proud person doesn't care about the pride in someone else. See, it's that sneaky. Sometimes you just can't get rid of a bomb. Now, I want to be very careful and clarify what we're speaking of when it comes to pride. I don't want us to think that pride that we're speaking of is a low self-esteem. There are people who believe it's good to devalue ourselves and beat up on ourselves and beat ourselves down. That is not what we're talking about. There are people who think that pride is never congratulating someone on something that they did well because that would cause them to be proud. No, we are to encourage each other. Scripture also includes that command. We're not talking about not celebrating accomplishments because you don't want someone to get too proud. We take those risks and encourage each other when we do something well. It's how we celebrate. We don't celebrate enough, to be honest. We're not talking about a low self-esteem either. We're not talking about this idea that I'm nothing or that I'm a worm or that I'm worthless and trying to create this false sense of humility in us. Low self-esteem is a form of pride too. I don't think we know that. I think we think, well, if I don't have any self-esteem, then I'm not a prideful person. The truth is, when we reject who God says we are and we try and lower ourselves because we talk down on ourselves, it's a form of pride. It's saying, God, what you've said of me is not true either. See, pride is sneaky. It's deceptive. It's destructive. What we are talking about, I want to put the, the rebellious pride definition on the screen for you so you have an idea and it's simply rejecting dependency on and refusing to worship God, aiming all the glory and honor that is due to God at myself. See, there's, there's, there's parts of this definition that are very, very damaging. And ultimately what we see in the scripture is that the ultimate rebellious pride is giving all the glory and honor that is due to God to myself. 
That's where it's most destructive. That's where it keeps us from seeing God's goodness. It keeps us from seeing God's mercy. It keeps us from seeing how powerful he is. It blinds us. That's what pride does. It's destructive. Pride can show up in arrogance about our accomplishments. Like we won't, if someone doesn't bring up what we've accomplished, we'll bring it up. It's subtle. It's confidence in our possessions. It's walking around thinking, I got a full bank account, I'm good. It's sneaky, gets in there, and it causes you to begin to walk in your own confidence. It's presuming things about others. It's saying, well, I'm going to think the worst of that person. We do this. I have a friend who went out to this, it was a kind of a case study that he was a part of, and it was like a three-week commitment, and he walks in to this classroom, and the professor sits all 30 of these students down, and he says to these students, I want you to get in groups of six. They get into groups of six, and as they sit around together, the professor says, I want you to come up with a list of reasons why you don't like the people you're in the group with. They'd never met, but everyone was able to come up with a list. It's what we do. We presume about others in our pride. It's this conceited and stuck-up attitudes. It's the mean girls. It is. And unfortunately, the mean girl attitude can walk in the church just as it walks outside the church. Conceitedness, being stuck up, refusal to listen to advice or direction from anyone. Pride is driving. Boasting about your talents and belittling the talents of others So basically, you've said, I'm great at this, and I'm going to tell you why they're not as good as me. Pride is gross when you start to think about it, but it drives us. The classic one-upper, right? Somebody tells a story, and you're like, I got a better story. There are some of you in this room, that's what you do. You're like, wait, they just told a great story. I've got to one-up them. It's that Penelope character from Saturday Night Live. Oh, just so you know, um, 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 just so you know. Uh, you, you, you rode on a boat, I rode on a spaceship. You, you, you did it. It's just one up constantly. It's this, I've got to make myself feel better in front of these people. The drive for status among people, racism. Pride showing up in race alone, a superiority complex, which Jesus condemned. Racism is a physical manifestation of pride. It's saying for some sick, twisted, demonic reason, because of the color of my skin, I'm better than someone else. High-mindedness, this constant thought of walking around that I am great. We do this regularly. Always right, refusal to admit wrong. And we do this with man and with God. I have no reason to repent or confess anything before man or before God. This is how pride shows up. And spiritual pride, at least I'm not like those people. You've had this thought. You've had this thought. This is what pride does. Pride may be described as the root of all sin, but it may also be seen as sin in its final form. The more we make proud decisions, deciding that I'm going to depend on me and what I get is the fruit of depending on me, it causes me to be more prideful. So pride is both the back end and the the, the, the front end and the back end of our sinful actions. Pride is destructive. 
Do you see it that way? Paul, in the, in the New Testament, in his warnings to a young pastor about the end times, says this in 2 Timothy chapter 3. You should know this, Timothy, that in the last days there will be very difficult times, for people will love only themselves and their money. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride, and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that. The phrase puffed up in its literal word meaning is to be wrapped up in smoke. So blinded by my pride that I cannot see anything else. The joke goes this way. A minister... Um, a computer whiz and a Boy Scout are on an airplane. And they're the only passengers on this airplane. And as the airplane malfunctions, the pilot says, he comes out of the cockpit and says, the plane is going down and we have three parachutes and there are four of us. As the pilot, I have a wife and three small children. I believe I should have one of these parachutes. And he jumps out of the plane. The computer whiz looks at the reverend and the boy scout and says, I'm the smartest man in the world. The world needs me. I'm jumping out with a parachute. The reverend looks over at the boy scout and says, well, I've lived a very long life. You're young. Why don't you take the last parachute? And the boy scout says, reverend, chill out. The smartest man in the world just grabbed my knapsack and jumped out of the plane. I love that joke. You'll laugh harder later when you think about it. <laughs> Pride is blinding. It blinds us from everything going on around. It causes us to cease thanksgiving. It causes us to cease to see God for who he is and what he's done. It causes us to devalue human beings. It causes us to play down the role of the church or small group communities or sitting across from other Christ followers because pride simply says, I got this. I can manage this. I'm good. I don't need anything. But this is also a warning to the church here as well. Timothy was warned they will act religious. And boy, do we know how to act. Some of us deserve Academy Award performances for our performance in the church. Some of us deserve awards and speeches to give because we've played the game for so, so long. And it's not what we were made to do. Pride in the church looks this way. I want to have Christian behavior, just not Jesus. I like the morals, but I don't care about God. I want the religious element, but I don't think I need him. I want the outer appearance, but I'm not interested in relationship with God. Sadly, this is what it means to reject the power that could make us godly. See, pride bookends our sinful actions. Pride keeps us from Christ 
It is the decision maker and the back end boaster of sinful actions. If Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith, pride is the author and perfecter of living by sight. I don't know of a better definition of pride. If Jesus author and perfects our faith, pride author and perfects living by sight. What I can see, what I can do. So if pride isn't just something we have to see put to death before Christ, it's what keeps people from knowing Jesus. Unbelief is our arrogance that God is not who he says he is and God cannot do what he says he can do. If pride needs to be put to death to see that, but it also needs to be killed while we follow Jesus, what do we do? A.W. Tozer in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, says it this way. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. The decline of the knowledge of the holy has brought on our troubles. A rediscovery of the majesty of God will go a long way toward curing them. Just like our pride takes a hit when we get smoked on the basketball court, if we think we're great and someone destroys us, our pride takes a hit, right? And what do we do when it takes a hit? We come up, we cry, that's right. Or we come up with excuses, right? Just as an artist, you see what they create and you think you're a great artist and what they have done is amazing. You're just like, oh man, I'm terrible. I should never do art again. Or you say, well, if I had what they had, then I could make the same art too, right? Just like our pride takes a hit when we see something or someone greater than what we're capable of, that is how God deals with our pride. And I believe that's part of the reason we don't like putting ourselves in front of God. We don't like opening the scriptures because we know we're going to see someone greater, more powerful, more smart, more intelligent, more all-knowing, more powerful than us. It's why the prideful heart runs from the scripture. It's why the prideful heart ignores the scripture because we think we've got this Christian walk. We don't need Jesus. We don't need God. We're moral people. Those people aren't. And that's how we're going to live. God goes to war against our pride by letting us see him. And if you're not sitting in the word of God, on a regular basis, your pride is going to continue to stand up and drive. Your pride is going to continue to keep you from repenting and confessing to God that he is God and that he loves us and that he's chased us and that he has given us all that we need. We hate that. We hate that he would give us something that we need because pride says, I don't need anything. But when we sit here, we see we are needy people and that's why we run from this book. It's why we say we don't want it, because we think we have everything we need. And the power of the word of God is he allows us to see that we are not as strong as we think we are. And it is for our good that he lets us in on that. Small view of God is dealt with by putting ourselves in a place to see him in front of his word. God loves curing small views of himself. He's not offended by it. He's not, his feelings aren't hurt by it. He loves to cure small views of himself. One of the greatest stories, one of the most well-known stories in the Old Testament is the story of Job, a man who goes through a lot of suffering, who loses everything financially, business, 
family. He has some friends, some that are dumb, some that are smart. They try and counsel him. They don't do a good job in counseling him. Some do. But Job gets to the point, to the end of his book, where he says, God, what have I done? I've been, I'm good. I have been so good. In fact, he gives this whole chapter of how good he has been. One of Job's friends says, do you know who you're talking to? Like, you're talking to God. And in one of my favorite, I got this moments in all of scripture, God says to Job in verse, chapter 38, chapter 2, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Now, when God says that to you, Pay attention. Listen up. Because you're about to get schooled, son. Like, what is going to happen is for your good. And I love it. He just goes in, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst from the womb and as I clothed it with clouds and wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far, no farther will you come here. Your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth to bring an end to the night's wickedness? As the light approaches, the earth takes shape like clay pressed beneath a seal. It is robed in brilliant colors. The light disturbs the wicked and stops the arm that is raised in violence. Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Do you know where the gates of death are located? Have you seen the gates of utter gloom? Do you realize the extent of the earth. Tell me about it if you know. Where does light come from and where does darkness go? I want you to know that this questioning goes on for four chapters. <laughs> I'm not reading it all to you this morning. If you want to know where God goes with this, you can read Job 38 on. All the chapter headings say, <laughs> from, the, from, 30, from 39 all the way to 42, the Lord's challenge continues. For four chapters, God goes on and asks Job if he knows what God knows. And it is for our good that he does this. In Job 42, this is Job's reply. <laughs> I don't think there's any other reply worthy. He says, I know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? That was me. <laughs> and I was talking about things I knew nothing about, things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I had only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. It is for Job's good that God takes him to the woodshed. Job, having thought he knew so much, 
thought he had the answers, begins to complain, begins to be frustrated, and in God's kindness to Job, he says, you really aren't as strong as you think you are. You are a desperate man. Thankfully, I am a generous God. As uh, C.S. Lewis said it this way, and as a man who lived as an atheist, strong, smart, intelligent atheist, he said, I gave in and admitted that God was God. See, pride will fight that fight as long as it can before Christ. Pride will say, I am God. I answer to me, and so does everyone else. This is how destructive pride really is. But God is not just big and powerful and wanting us to know that because he does want us to know that. It is important for us to know that God desires that we know that he is in and over all things, more powerful, stronger than you or me. But not only that, he wants us to know that he is loving and merciful. If God was just big and bad and strong and would just flex, that would not be enough for us. But to know that he has loved us before we loved him is a game changer in this whole how do I view God question. You may come to the point in your life where you say, there is a God. The next logical question in that process is then what is he like? And unfortunately, many people are not driven by their thoughts that there is a God. They are driven and they live based on what they think God is like. This is where God's kindness is that he would reveal he is all-powerful, all-knowing, in all places, stronger than we are. But he is so merciful and compassionate and slow to get angry and inviting and if you don't have this God who is powerful and strong and loving and merciful and they're not married together, you've just got him, he's powerful and strong, so you stay away from him, or he's just loving and he's merciful, so you don't care about your sin, you have a false view of God. They go together. Jesus is not God part two in the New Testament, and we forget about God part one in the Old Testament. They go together. Genesis to Revelation is God revealing himself, and the fullest picture we have of God is Jesus. They are not two separate stories. They go together. Yes, we see a God powerful in the Old Testament. We see a God loving in the New Testament. And if all you say is, I just like the New Testament God, then you have, you have slighted your journey with him by rejecting his power, his holiness, his might, and that he would chase sinful people. You are the one who is missing a full view of who God is. And so as you journey in this struggle against pride, knowing that he is big and strong is one thing, but knowing that he is loving and compassionate and merciful because it changes us. Thanksgiving is the result of knowing these things. Jesus illustrates this point in a story that covers not only the danger of pride, but then celebrates the heart of a really good father. 
In Luke chapter 15, starting in verses 1 and 2, we see who was listening to Jesus as he told this story. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So in one situation, you have proud and you have humble sitting together, listening to Jesus speak. Jesus tells two stories. He tells a story about a shepherd willing to leave 99 sheep to go after the one. And then there's this party after he collects the one. He tells this other story of a woman who loses a coin of all these coins she's got, but she tears her house apart to find the one coin. Then she calls all her girlfriends over and says, come party with me. I found my coin. And as these verses and these stories conclude, they both conclude with phrases like this in Luke chapter 15, verse 10. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. Do you believe that? Or do you believe that's for some other sinner that God celebrates? Do you believe that God wouldn't celebrate if I came home, so I'm staying away. That's pride. It's pride to say that those are the sinners that God celebrates for. They're different sinners than me. I can't come to him. I'm worse off. That's pride. And it will keep you from knowing an all-powerful God who is merciful and loving. But Jesus said this is how the Father celebrates when a sinner comes home. He didn't say, this is how God celebrates when people who are already good do great things. He said, when one sinner turns from their thought that they are God or that they can't be with me, those are two prideful thoughts, all of heaven celebrates. We don't know how to do that very well here on earth. That's so why I'm so thankful that God's going to show us how to celebrate. I'm so thankful he will show us how to celebrate the supernatural of a, of a regenerate heart celebrating him. I'm so glad that we will have him to show us what it means to celebrate. We are so reserved in our celebrations. I used to, there was a guy I used to work with. He's like, well, I celebrate on the inside. I'm like, dude, your face Your face, man. Your face doesn't say you celebrate anything. This is what we are told by Jesus. That our Father celebrates the broken who would say, I don't have it in my own. And I need to come home. He tells the story. You've heard it. The prodigal son there are many who believe this, this, this story should really be titled The Extravagant Father because it's really about him. It's not about the sons. The story is this, this young, younger son says to his dad, Hey, I want the money that I would be given if you were dead. It's a prideful statement, right? And the father agrees says, Sure, here's your share. And what we know in the story that Jesus tells is that this younger son leaves home goes to the big city, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, ready to take on the world. And just right about that time, the gold diggers find their way to him. Hey, this dude's got some money. Let's hook, let's, let's hook up with him. 
And you know the story. The money runs out, and the friends leave. And as the money runs out, and as the friends leave, and the younger son finds himself in disaster, he makes a prideful decision and says, I will go and work for a pig farmer. Rather than go back to my father's house, I will go work for a pig farmer. A prideful decision. I'm in charge. Like, I'm the one who's making the shots. I have made my bed. I will lay in it. And as he is feeding slop to pigs, he has a aha moment. Hey, you know what? I'll go home and I'll tell my father, hey, I've really messed up. I have sinned against you. If you'll just take me on as a hired hand, I'll do my thing. Just we'll ignore that whole father-son thing. We'll do that. And I'll just, that's pride. Do you know that? The younger son was coming up with a plan for himself. So he comes home in amazing fashion, unlike any description of a God who these people of Israel would have known. This man runs off of his porch and embraces his younger son, squeezing him. And the younger son says, Dad, hold on just a second. I've got my plan. <clears throat> Father, I have sinned against you alone and... If you would just be so kind and hire me as your hired servant, I, I won't be the... Forget about the whole son thing. Forget about that. And I'll just be your hired hand. And I love how I, I would have interjected, are you done? Are you done with your plan? Like, can you just be done planning things? Can you just stop it for a second? Because I want to tell you something better than being a hired hand. I want to put a ring on your finger. I want to put a coat over you. I want to put shoes on your feet. And you know that cow that we've had since you were a kid? Let's kill it and celebrate you being home. See, if the, if the younger son had gotten his way, he would have gotten nothing. But because the heavenly father is generous and compassionate and slow to get angry and welcoming sinners home, this younger man who was prideful in all of his actions experienced grace and forgiveness. See, so many people like to talk about the older son. Well, he just came out stomping his feet. He was mad. He was mad that the son was welcomed home. That's so much pride. Guys, pride kept them both out of the house. Pride kept both the younger son and the older son out of experiencing the father's blessings. The one who says, I can do it all on my own outside of my father's house. And the older son, the religious I can do it all without my father, even when I live in his house. See, this is how pride works. It's sneaky, deceptive, and destructive. I told that story in China through a translator, through an interpreter, and um, a man stood up in the coffee shop. He grabs the microphone and says, This is a very wonderful story! <laughs> I was like, Dude, I thought maybe you were going to hurt me or something. Where have you heard this story? I said, well, Jesus told this story. And after, this, after we were done doing what we were going to do in the coffee shop, we sat and drank coffee together. And I just asked him, I said, have you, have you heard anything about Jesus living in China? Anything? He says, no, really the only thing I've heard is God only helps those who help themselves. A phrase that is nowhere found in the scripture. I said, the story I told you that Jesus told sounds a little different than that. He said, yeah, it does. You see, pride 
keeps us out of the Father's house. Whether we're the rebellious son or we're the religious son, we can be in here as prideful as all get out, hiding it from everyone else, but still lacking relationship with God. We can be the prideful person who says, I won't go into a church because I don't think I belong there. That is to also be proud and to reject the Father's invitation. Pride is so trapping. It's destructive and it's so subtle. And that is why we must put ourselves in front of his presence daily. For some of us, it may be hourly. For some of us, it may be every 15 minutes. For some of us, you just best plug in the headphones and the iPod to God's word and just walk with it all day. But if we're not putting ourselves in a place to see this all-powerful yet compassionate and merciful Father, our pride will drive all day long. I love how the Father responds in letting us know that we are not as strong as we think we are. I was listening to ESPN Radio a couple weeks ago, and one of the writers who was, he writes, he, he was the guy who got assigned to follow Muhammad Ali around, um, and he just got to go everywhere he went and basically write down his life story and he sat on an airplane, and a flight attendant walks over to Muhammad Ali and says, Mr. Ali, uh, I need you to fasten your seatbelt before the plane takes off. Muhammad Ali looks at the flight attendant and says, um, Ma'am, Superman don't need no seatbelt. And the flight attendant, without even thinking, looks at Muhammad Ali and says, Superman don't need no plane. <laughs> You see, we are not as strong as we think we are. And it is for our good that God reveals that to us so that our pride can be squashed. As the band comes this morning and we close and we consider several things this morning, seeing that God is both big and powerful and loving and merciful stirs something in us. And this stirring in us goes to war directly against our pride. The word is thanksgiving. The word is thanksgiving. You see, God has never, never asked us to impress him with our works. He has not. He has never asked us, hey, show me what you got. Impress me with what you can do. What he has asked us to do is to be amazed at his work. And that frustrates us to no end as human beings, doesn't it? Because we just want to hold up the trophy and say, God, look at what I can do. And he's like, that's great. But have you considered what I've done? This stirs thanksgiving. Pride will keep us from that. Thanksgiving will cause us to boast in only what God has done. Colossians chapter 2 verse 6 says this. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord... You must continue to follow him. Let your roots grow down into him and let your lives be built on him. Then your faith will grow strong in the truth you were taught and you will overflow with thankfulness. I'm telling you, the church should be the humblest group of people ever assembled because it's not about us. <laughs> if humility is nowhere found in the church, then chances are Jesus is not proclaimed 
in that church. Which is a warning for all of us about who we proclaim. Are we more anxious to tell our story or are we more anxious to tell Jesus' story? We don't boast in our works. And the thanksgiving that we are speaking of here is not simply, hey God, thanks for my stuff. Whenever, whenever people come back from short-term mission trips, typically the response is, I'm so glad for my air condition. I'm so glad I have a TV that I can have. I'm so glad that I've got a car and I don't have to walk. I don't think short-term missions was meant to strengthen our love for our idols. I'm pretty sure we were, when we go, we're supposed to be saying, I'm so glad that God uses people like me in the lives of people that have nothing. I'm almost certain that God would not have us be more thankful for the things he gives us than we are thankful for him. It's idol worship when we're more thankful for our stuff than we are for him. This is how thanksgiving blows the hinges off of the pride game that we hold on to. We're thankful for Christ and what he's done Yeah, you can be thankful that you have coffee. You can be thankful that you have a bed. You can be thankful that you have a home. You can be thankful for your talents. But if you're more thankful for those things than you are for the work of Christ on the cross, you have identified your idol. And it is his kindness that does that for us. We don't boast in anything but the work of Christ. And as Hebrews chapter 12 says... Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. As we go to the corners of the rooms this morning, there's another element that we want to throw into it. And on the back wall, there's just some big pieces of paper and some markers that will be set out. And there's a, it's a thankful wall. It's a wall that you could traditionally just say, I'm thankful for family, for friends, for this, for that. I want to know, and I think the church wants to know, what are you thankful for Jesus for? What is it about Christ that causes you to go, I am so thankful for what he's done? It's that story we want to tell. And so as your family goes to the corners of the rooms or as you go with your friends or as you go alone, regardless of how you came, this is the body. This is your family. And so we look around at people taking this bread and dipping it in the juice and we go, what is this? You're thankful for Jesus too? Me too. (laughs) Me too. And so as you would be, be led to, you can go right over there. You can let your children do it. You can do it. Just saying thank you for who Jesus is. If you need to say thank you for some things, that's fine too. But, but what if you're telling his story through that thankful wall? And then even as we eat around tables, our pride is attacked. Did you know that? Food is an indicator that we are not self-sustaining. Did you know that? Do you know you can't live without food or drink? You're not as strong as you think you are. And it's for our good that God reveals that to us. So even as you eat this meal, worship can be your response. Thank you, God, that this food tastes oh so good. But thank you that you provide for my needs in a deeper way, even than this food will. Father, we love you. And as we celebrate Thanksgiving, 
May we be a people who refuse to be more thankful for stuff than we are for Jesus and what he has done. May your name, your message, your invitation be what we proclaim. May we just declare this all-powerful God at the same time, this compassionate and merciful and loving God. And may we see how they beautifully work together to go straight to war against our pride. May it be your name and your presence we live for.